Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with family therapist and ambiguous loss expert Pauline Boss. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. So how are we, Chris? Do you need uh do you need levels? Okay. Um, How's my voice? <clears throat> tell tell us, have you had lunch? Did you have lunch? Not really. Okay. What did you have for breakfast? A good Swiss I have breakfast? For breakfast. Yes. A little uh, muesli. <laughs> <laughs> See? And some milk. Uh-huh. And uh, coffee mm-hmm. with milk. Mm-hmm. And so it's a bit Swiss, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. We got the thumbs up. All right. So, so Pauline, when I... Um, I'm going to have to say on the air, right, that I know you, I think, because, but, and um, as a neighbor and then as a friend, but um, it was really, um, and I feel like in some ways I was, I was diving into a conversation that you and I have had repeatedly or parts of it across the years, but I, there was so much I, there were so many depths to it that I didn't know. So it was really exciting for me. Oh, really? Yeah. And like, I, you know, I'd oh, read really? and I'd even read the books or parts of all the books, but um, kind of knowing that I was going to interview you. And then also, I think this stuff, um, you know, wherever you are in life and whatever you're attending to, um, this make this all makes sense in different ways. It's a different right? time of life. Yeah, it reads different differently. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, because I bet I wrote about all those some things about my father and that in my book I just wrote, and I was and so suddenly I was really seeing some of the, that part of your work too. So it's really interesting. So, um, so happy we're doing this. <laughs> good. Good. Now, if I get a frog in my throat, yeah, can we so, stop? Yes. So this is. Um, we will edit this later on. So if you want to stop, if you want to back up, if you want to be nonlinear, if you need to clear your throat, take a drink. Okay. It's and you don't okay. have to repeat things. It we just it just gets to be a real conversation. Hmm. Um it's just a little bit different because you and I have had so many okay. conversations in another mode. Have you done any other interviews with people you knew this well? I uh Or is this a just the first I I've done interviews with people who I knew that I think, you know, I think maybe I still had gotten to know them in some way professionally. So I feel it's different. But I'm so happy to be able to draw out what you know for people. Yeah, Thank so. you. Thank you for having me, Krista. <laughs> really, really, because there's a lot of suffering out there. I know. So I just want to start, um, I mean, so you were growing up in the 1930s, kind of in the in that world, roiled by the Great Depression, and after, um, and an extended, you wrote, an extended immigrant family on, on a southern Wisconsin farm. Yes. Um, 
And I've heard a lot of those stories from you, but uh, I don't actually think I've ever asked you this question I always ask at the beginning of my interviews, which is, what was the spiritual background to all that? The spiritual background, obviously, in Swiss immigrant families, we were Protestant, and it was more of the swingly kind of church. And uh, at first, the church services in Nuglaris, Wisconsin, were actually in German. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a swingly church. And as time went on, and I believe it was in the 1950s, um, that uh, swingly church merged with the congregational church. I always thought an unlikely marriage, but it has taken uh, it has taken well, and mm-hmm. it is now known as the United Church of Christ. Okay, all right. Um, <clears throat> so it was a German-speaking church when you were growing yes. up. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it was. And then at some point, I guess they had to make a traumatic transition to speaking English to doing the services in English. Yes, and of course, uh, you needed a pastor, or originally you needed a pastor who could speak German, and then what happened is the younger, the newer pastors couldn't speak German, and there were many younger generation people who also weren't speaking Swiss, by the way, this was Swiss German, Uh, and and so it just gradually uh, morphed into English. But listen, the Calvinism came through uh, <laughs> in English, just in as English, well. just as well. Right. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Um, and then you know, here's a line I found in your writing um, that I feel to me. I, I would say this is also a description of spiritual background, and also a, I think a bridge to what you, the work you've ended up doing. I mean, you said homesickness was an essential part of my family's culture. It was. I think it may be true for all immigrant families, um, but it certainly was for mine, and it was even in the village because there were many immigrant families there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it became a sort of um, pathos that would be in the family when we weren't even aware of it, except that I could see the sadness periodically, like when my father would get a letter from Switzerland, mm-hmm. or worse yet, a letter with a black rim around it, which meant announcement of death in the family. Uh, so I was always aware that there was uh, another family somewhere and that there was some homesickness, except where was home? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I f- I figured that home was in Wisconsin where we lived, but yet I knew he had this other family across the Atlantic uh, that he pined for. And my maternal grandmother was the same. Uh, And, of course, she refused to learn English, and she said she lost her mountains, she lost her mother, she lost her friends, uh, and she wasn't going to lose her language. So I think that, too, is not unusual for immigrant families today, especially the elders. You know, one thing reading that about your family made me reflect on is that we we talk a lot about immigrants, right? And especially now. Yes. Um, And we even talk about things like people sending money back to family. Yes. But we don't kind of acknowledge the grief. or that homesickness, or that sadness, that that loss, that must always be there, even when people have made a choice to um, to go far away. I think that's part of our American culture that mm-hmm. we don't want to hear that. Yeah. Um, and we don't 
we don't just deny death in our culture. I think we deny ambiguous loss that comes with things like immigration. Uh, and homesickness comes along with that, and we we really want people to get over it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and and they don't, and so and in fact, it's paradoxical. The more you want people to get over it, the longer it will take mm-hmm. uh, for them. And why not uh, remember your former country, your former island, your former culture, while you're learning to? fit into the new one. In other words, having two cultures is what it ends up being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you you have one foot in the old and one foot in the new. And one can live that way. That may be the most honest way to do it. Hmm. So um, you, you, you started down this path that led you to kind of really beginning this, coining this phrase and beginning this field of ambiguous loss. Um, in research you were doing as a student of psychology, a, a graduate student, I think. Family so, psychology. Family psychology. And um, you, were, you were questioning kind of in yourself and then in your research the disconnect between the reality of family life as you knew it and the way the field of family theory had developed. And this was kind of an interesting story to me that it could, I mean, would you tell a little bit of that story that that you know that that the normal family was defined coming out of World War II? Yes, uh, in the late forties, early fifties, the normal American family—they literally used that term. By the way, I'm talking about Parsons, Talcott Parsons, and others at that time. Um, the normal American family was a man who earned the living, the provider, and a woman who was, quote, the emotional smoother of waters. Was that actually uh, unquote, language that yes, the psychologist uh-huh. used? <laughs> and, and she was to take care of the children and the house and smooth the emotional waters of the family. The hard part of that was that her role was in isolation. That is, she was uh, limited to the home, the house. Mm-hmm. She was called housekeeper in those days, homemaker, housekeeper. Mm. He, his role was limited to away from the house and away from the children. So fathers never got to know their kids, and mothers were isolated at home. And, and it was um, the um, Feminine Mystique, the book Feminine Mystique, that labeled what that was causing, uh, this sort of malaise that had no name. Uh, and finally, then after that, people began realizing that uh, something had to change. Roles had to be more flexible. Uh, indeed, both things had to happen in families, uh, economic providing and and smoothing the emotional waters mm-hmm. and cooking and cleaning and all of these things, but that it wasn't based on gender. Mm-hmm. That was a revolution, uh, and a revolution that may, in fact, still be going because um, while women are helping to earn money now, um, there is not exactly equity uh, at home in the the duties that are going on. Mm-hmm. And on and on the other hand, there are some cases where men are now the stay-at-home parent, right, where it's totally reversed. It's totally reversed, yeah. but that is the minority still. But so, what's interesting to me is. Um, the way you started um, thinking about ambiguous loss, you started with this idea of father absence. And um, you would eventually call this kind of type two ambiguous loss, mm-hmm. which is somebody's here, but they're not here. But I mean, 
where my mind went is it, it just in what you just said about um, the the fact that societally uh, we you know men were kind of given this role too. Yes, right. They yes. were they were not actually to their invited to to inhabit that space of right. emotional connection right. with their children or maybe even with their wives. But I think you, I think you, you know. So, but what you did by naming that is questioning how normal it was, how healthy it was, and and that that's how this started with this very this relationship that's so close to home for all of us. Yes, and I I was at that time already uh, interested in family stress, mm-hmm. and I was at the University of Wisconsin getting a degree in child development. Uh, and family studies, which I added, um, the degree itself was child development. And I saw that fathers, uh, when they came in for family therapy sessions, uh, which we were studying at that time, they would be angry about coming in and they would say, the children are mother's business and why am I here? I need to be at work. Um, and so I came up with the term at that time, um, psychological father absence in mm-hmm. intact families. So right. So the so everybody's present physically. Yes. The the family unit exists, but he's but not there's there. Absence. His yep. mind is in his briefcase, as some of the children said, or his mind is at the office. Or mm-hmm. and, and today, by the way, women can experience this as well. Right. Um, but it. It became uh, interesting to me at that early stage in that the the real physical father absence literature wasn't predicting things consistently. And I think it is because they weren't taking into consideration that fathers can be psychologically absent as well as physically absent, and both will be stressful for the family. Right. And so... So we'll talk. I mean, we'll talk some more about these different forms of ambiguous loss, and I think especially this one. Um, the the type one ambiguous loss yes. that eventually became um, the, the other the other kind of foundation of the field is uh, I also very much like the stuff of news headlines and TV dramas, right, <laughs> movies. And it, it also, again, it's interesting to me, you were formulating, and that is, so So if, if there's this type of ambiguous loss, which is physical presence and psychological absence, which would also be dementia. Right. Uh, or Autism. kind of mental illness where people incrementally disappear. Um, and, and then, but there's also physical absence and psychological presence so the yes. person disappears and, it, and so it, you know for, for me to think about you coining this term in the 1970s and thinking about the MIAs of the Vietnam War yes. like missing in action uh, which I you know I remember growing up in that in those years we all wore these bracelets right or you had the name yes. of someone and I think as a child being aware of how completely traumatizing that was but probably not understanding um, that trauma um, it's it's in these kinds of um, great disasters that you've been called in, where you've been called in to help people with the Red Cross, like the tsunami where people mm-hmm. get swept away. Uh, I didn't intend that. Yeah. You mean when you started out? Not at all. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really not a um, – I'm not a first responder. I'm not even brave, uh, and I'm not good in the field. Yeah. Um, but – 
when I was studying this psychological absence, and I gave my first paper on that as a graduate student, the military was in the audience, and they said, if you would reverse this and study a physical absence, uh, we would have data for you on the families of the missing in action soldiers. Oh, in so Vietnam. they had experienced that trauma of people not being able to say goodbye, not being yes. able to marry, yes. bury their dead. And it was the military ah. from the Center for Prisoner of War Studies in San Diego uh, who recognized that they said, I had a theory, uh, and they had data. And could we get together? So I hadn't written. I was going to write my dissertation on psychological father absence. So that got dropped. Mm -hmm. And so instead I wrote it on physical father absence because at that time the MIAs were all male. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that took me down this road of um, more um, disastrous kinds of losses outside Mm -hmm. the home. And um, the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I feel like, um, and maybe it's just because I've been aware of your work and kind of in this on and off conversation with you, I feel like these kinds of um, events are just that much more in in our cultural imagination. I mean, they are. you know, the, the, the Malaysian airplane that disappears without a trace and and you, maybe it's also because the cameras are ever present, and we we see that these people, these family members, cannot find peace. And I think it's personal too. You're absolutely right that you can't pick up the newspaper uh, without. I think almost each day, yeah. finding some kind of uh, missing person or disappearance right. or. Uh, someone um, regarding some kind of physical loss each day. But I think it also hits our psyche deeply. Uh, We come from culture in this country of, I think, um, mastery orientation. We like to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not comfortable with unanswered questions. And and this is full of unanswered questions. These are losses that are minus facts. Somebody's gone. You don't know where they are. You don't know if they're alive or dead. You don't know if they're coming back. Uh, And so that kind of mystery, I think, um, gives us a feeling of helplessness that we're very uncomfortable with as a society. So I think we're taken to this idea um, that we see in the paper all the time. it's not always called ambiguous loss, but that's my my category for it. But I think those ideas pull people in because uh, of the helplessness of it. And so we say, thank God it's not me. Yeah. I mean, there's even right now this uh, television series, The Leftovers. Did they ask you, did you advise on that? No, I did the advise. Mis- the, there was another one, The Missing, the, the British series. Uh, the leftovers didn't. I didn't consult with them. Yeah. But um, I was watching television one evening, and um, actually, I was in bed, and all of a sudden, the character said, "Well, this is ambiguous loss," and the yeah. other character said, "What do you mean by that?" And the other character defined it, and I almost fell out of bed. I mean, it was so startling. (laughs) But in fact, the character defined it correctly. So Uh whomever used it uh, did their homework and used it correctly. 
Um, I'm pleased, actually, that the term is now in the general lexicon. Mm -hmm. And there are um, plays written about it. There are many sermons written on it um, and sent to me in various Mm -hmm. religions. Um, And um, people talk about it. And so it... it, um, it captures our imagination, and I think we don't always know what to do with the discomfort of it, yeah. but I think our imagination is captured by it. Yeah, and I mean, just, I think the, the Leftovers movie is, it, the the premise is that um, that one day, I don't know, I think it's 3% of the population disappears suddenly without a trace, with no explanation, and I think, uh, you know, we live in this renaissance moment of television but it it is an especially challenging series and as you say it's it's very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and and what we experience is this kind of long-term effect of everyone having gone through this at the same time Uh um so so i want to talk about like what you know but again, we see this when the airplane disappears. Um, we, we see it with the kidnapped child. Um, yes. We see it with the mountain climber who never comes home. Um, and the sailor who vanishes at sea. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about some of the things you know. Um, the one thing that you, that you say uh, is that uh, the, the kind of grief that's involved in ambiguous loss is not is distinct from traditional grief. So how is it different? Well, with ambiguous loss, there's really no possibility of closure, Mm -hmm. not even, in fact, resolution, whichever word you prefer to use. And therefore, it ends up uh, looking like what the psychiatrists now call complicated grief. Right. And that is, in fact, a diagnosis, complicated grief, um, and which, which is, it's believed that it requires some kind of psychiatric intervention. My point is very different, that ambiguous loss is a complicated loss, which causes, therefore, complicated grief, mm-hmm. but it is not pathological, mm-hmm. uh, individually, that is. It's not a pathological psyche, it's a pathological situation. The and as as clients frequently say back to me, "Oh, you mean the situation is crazy, not me." Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I mean. Mm. It's an illogical, chaotic, unbelievably painful situation that these people people go through who have missing loved ones, either physically or psychologically, and if they have uh, some symptoms of grief that carry on, let's say even for five or ten years if it's a caregiver of an Alzheimer's patient or the parent of a missing child, there is nothing wrong with them. That is typical. That is to be expected, that they would grieve along the way for the various things that they are missing. For example, if a child is kidnapped, they may have an extra grief when this child's friends are graduating or when this child's friends are marrying or having their first job or going away for college. So the grief is long-term. It is chronic grief, yes. So um, I, um, 
worked as a just when I was in divinity school as a, a chaplain on an Alzheimer's ward, um, and I remember watching people come to see their loved one, their spouse, their grandmother, their sister, and um, and I remember. Uh, as this person who just wandered in and was there to care care about people and care for them, I, I, I would I would be so impatient with how um, uh, people would be so upset when you know they came in and this person didn't remember their name. Um, and I and over time I got so much more compassionate about that because I realized that this the stress, the difficulty, it, because it was like an incremental death. Right? That's so exactly right. Every time it's they came, there was a little bit more gone, and yet it's this person who looks the same. And how that it was so, it was just this monument, it is this monumental struggle for people to, uh, to, 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 to be uh, peace, peacefully inhabit this reality that this person they love is, is as you say, there and not there. Both here or, and yeah. gone. Um, and really needing them to remember their name or, you know, to know who they were. Just, and that, that there was this, um, this incredible pain associated with that, which I, fi- which I finally understood, I think, um, as, lo- as you say, re- it's re- it was reasonable, but it was so out of sync with the unreasonability That's of right. it. That's then, right. Um, the, but then the other thing that I think we, we observe culturally, and I guess this is the corollary to it, is uh, how... I feel like it's kind of mysterious how important it is for human beings to bury their dead. Yes, right? it is. Like, but not everyone is doing that anymore, um, sadly. Yeah. I, uh, regrettably, from but, my point of view at any rate. But how, how do you understand what that is in us like as a species that we... I don't know if it's so important to bury our dead, but I think it's important for us to know where the body is. Right, to have a body. And... and and then we get some mastery by having which rituals we want and burying them where we want or how we want, whether it's scattering of ashes or uh, a, a burial in the ground. I think that's very important. We need some control uh, when we lose someone like that. Um, but I think it's also uh, has to do with attachment. And we see this, by the way, in elephants as well. Uh, they, people want to come back to touch base with where this body is or where the symbol of this body is. People of the missing, of course, come back to the memorials, mm. like the 9-11 mm-hmm. memorial or the ones in Japan after tsunami or right. wherever around the world, uh, Holocaust memorials. But those touch those, place in, those places, those, yes. ones, those that need in us? They're, they're helpful in place of a burial site. Mm-hmm. So people who don't know where their loved ones are really, really need uh, memorials. They, they, place, uh, they play a very great function mm-hmm. in our psychological uh, well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from you that I've learned um, that, you know, to the extent that we have a cultural vocabulary of grief— we very much it's it's very much formed by Elizabeth Kubler Ross and her um, delineating the five stages of grief in 1969 denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance um, it's from you I've learned that in fact she never meant she never meant for those stages of grief to be understood 
to be taken on the way we've taken them on, which is that when we encounter any grieving person or any per- person's loss, even the more traditional forms of loss, um, we think that's kind of a prescription for what they go through and then they get to the end. That's part, again, of a culture of mastery, a culture of um, problem solving and wanting to move on with things. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross um, found those five stages to be relevant to people who are dying, uh, who are uh, fading into death. Mm-hmm. Not uh, somebody, not someone who's at the loss end of that death. No, she yeah. she did not mean that for mm-hmm. the family members. But in fact, uh, it it blurred over into that, and I don't know if that was her, or I think it was more so her her followers. Mm-hmm. Um, Today, the new research in grief and loss um, does not um, recommend linear stages. Um, we like linear stages, though, as the news media really likes it, because, in fact, it has an ending. It has a finite right. end. If you start with stage one and you move on <laughs> to stage five, get to acceptance. you're done. You're yep. no longer grieving. Well, we now know that that is not true and that um, p- human beings live with grief and, in fact, are able to live with grief. Uh, they don't have to get over it. Uh, they don't obsess with it five years down the road, but they occasionally remember and are sad uh, or go to the grave or um, have some thoughts about the person who died. And this is normal. So we now know that living with grief uh, is more oscillations of up and down. Uh, and those ups and downs get farther apart over time, but they never completely go away, the downs, uh, of, of feeling blue, of feeling sad. Mm-hmm. And in order to understand this, though, we have to make a difference between depression and sadness. Right, right. And so, so far that hasn't depression. been made. Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, depression is an illness that requires a medical intervention. Um, It's the minority of people who have depression. Uh, And yet, um, with the ambiguous loss of, let's say, Alzheimer's disease and 50-some other dementias, caregivers are uh, said to be depressed. Most of the caregivers I have met and studied and, and treated are not depressed, they're sad, they're grieving, and this should be normalized. And sadness is treated with human connection. Mm-hmm. So having social events, having, having peer groups, joining other groups, being able to go to church, someone relieves you so you can do that, or, or being able to go shopping, whatever yeah. it is you like to do, is the treatment for sadness. Treatment for depression is something else, and we need to know that most of the people who have lost loved ones are sad and occasionally grieving, even 5, 20 years out, um, a minority need depression and medical help. So so one of the things that you say um, is that so so and this is this is um this makes so much sense but it's the kind of thing that makes sense we have to say it that people can't cope with the problem until they know what the problem is yes and with the in the middle of these ambiguous losses um you can't get a handle on it that's um, right and then you but you've also said um and I, f- I feel like it might apply also to what you just said like naming sadness as sadness and as it's actually a normal human experience and not 
not a not an illness, not a pathology. Um, you said you said with ambiguous loss that once people have a name for it, just that, that the helps. stress level goes down a bit. Yes, I learned that um, by doing it the first time, and that is when you say to people, for example, after nine eleven. Um, we were working with the families of the um, workers who cleaned the trade towers and ran the elevators and ran the air conditioning and the windows on the World Restaurant. Um, many of them did not speak English, so we had to translate uh, as little as possible. And my beginning, and I don't speak Spanish, so it, it was translated. My beginning was this. What you're experiencing is ambiguous loss uh, because your loved ones are still missing. It is the most difficult, most stressful loss there is, but it is not your fault. That's all I would say uh, before the translators took over. Mm -hmm. And the people understood that and felt relieved. Primarily, after a traumatic event, most people blame themselves even if it's a tornado, by the way, I've seen this. You mean they find ways to think that they were responsible yes, for what happened? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things you want to do to lower the stress level to begin with is to say it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And you may have to say that many times. And then you can move on to saying, okay, how do we live with the ambiguity? What meaning does this have for you? And... I have six guidelines in the book, but they're not linear. Mm -hmm. They can go any any direction you want. Uh, you don't have to start with one and end up with six. Finding meaning is a difficult one, and it's not done overnight. Mm -hmm. um, there was one woman after 9-11 who had a newborn, and she was blaming herself because she didn't wake her husband up early enough that morning. Mm -hmm. He he uh, had an alarm clock and it didn't go off. He was in the um, trade tower usually by 8 and out by 9. And on this day, he was late, and so he was in the trade tower when it went down. Right. She blamed herself as she was crying. <clears throat> she was at her wit's end. And we were meeting with large groups. We did not do one-to-one -one therapy. There aren't enough therapists to go around. Furthermore, this culture didn't believe in one-to-one -one therapy. So we had family group meetings. And about a year later, um, we would meet, by the way, every month or so. About a year later, um, I complimented her on how lovely her little boy was. He was standing up at that time, leaning on her leg, and she said to me, do you remember that story I told you about my husband oversleeping and that I, it was my fault? I said, yes, I remember. And she said, well, he always set the alarm clock. Mm. And I realized that finally, and it wasn't my fault. He just wanted another hour to be with us. <sighs> now, that's the transformation we're after right. uh, with ambiguous loss, where she is no longer blaming herself, and she has a meaning that she can live with the rest of her life without too much stress. You, you, you've used this, um, this language of 
You've said that dialectical thinking, that paradoxical thinking helps, and I, I think that's an example of that. But ex- explain that, what you mean by that. Cause, and, and again, uh-huh. I think that's not necessarily instinctive for us as creatures and certainly not in moments when we're stressed. Yes. Right? I think it might be a more Eastern way of thinking, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yes, the only way to live with ambiguous loss is to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. And... And these are some examples. Um, With the physically missing, people might say, uh, he's gone, he's probably dead, and maybe not. Uh, Or uh, he may be coming back, but maybe not. Those kinds of thinking uh, are common, and it is the only way that people can lower the stress of living with the ambiguity. And Children learn it rapidly, and even adults learn it. Not it doesn't take too long. Um, be, it is not part of our culture. However, yeah. we like uh, finite answers. You're either dead or you're alive. Uh, you're either here or you're gone. And let's say you have somebody with dementia or a child with autism, um, and they're there, but they're not always there. And so once you put that frame on it. People are more at ease mm-hmm. uh, and re- recognize that that may be the closest to the truth that they're going to get. To say either or, to to think in a more binary way, he's dead or he's alive. Right. You're either here or you're gone. Right. That would involve some denial and lack of truth. So the only truth is that middle way of... Um, he he may be coming back and maybe not. But I see so that the inclination that we have is even culturally is um, you know Americans are such fighters, right? Yes, so we they are. say, well, you know, we will solve this mystery. I will find them. We will find a cure, right? Or um, on the other hand, uh, as um, as friends or colleagues, we we kind of want people to get over it, right? Yes. Or even as people we love, we love this person, and we want them to get over it because it feels like they're uh, um, kind of choosing pain, I suppose. Uh, and we don't like suffering. Yeah, right. uh, it's, you know, it, it's a more Eastern idea that suffering is part of life. Our idea is that suffering is something you should get over and, as you say, cure it or fix it or find, find some solution for it. The fact of the matter is, uh, that's a good thing, by the way. It is probably what has made um, our society great and has made technology right. Right. so wonderful and um, cures for uh, diseases and so on. So I don't want to put that down at all. But here's, here's the, the, the crux. Now and then, there's a problem that has no solution. It could be an illness. It could be a lost person. It could be something like as more everyday ambiguous losses, such as adoption, a divorce, um, immigration. Now and then, there are problems that don't have a perfect fix. And then this idea of holding two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time is very useful for stress reduction, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to you. I think one of the questions that um, that 
is on a lot is on many people's minds when you have this conversation is like how you know what's what do you know about what's the best way to react and i was listening to you um on a call in show and uh you know people would call, people would call in and everybody everybody had such a unique story right and i remember you know a woman whose brother i think went hiking and just never came back and they never it was a wilderness area and they never found his body and um and and it was you know a decade ago and and i just i listened to you listening to her and the question you asked was uh and how long has it been? And, and it was 10 years, 14 years. I think that might be a question that uh, in kind of normal interactions, one might be embarrassed to ask or feel like that would take them back or something. So you asked that and, it, and she answered it. And then, and then you just said, I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. There's really nothing else to say. Uh, And I think we could help each other in society to learn how to speak to people who have missing loved ones. I think it's perfectly good to ask them how long has it been Mm -hmm. because they want to tell you how long it's been. And sometimes it's been decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, for example, with the Holocaust and slavery, shall we go back? And civil war and with the Native Americans, and any genocide throughout the world, it can be a hundred years, and they still remember it. And so it's okay to say, how long has it been? And then to say, probably the only honest thing you can say, if you feel it, and that is, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. We can't fix it, you see. We can't fix it. Um, I I think that gets at well, and one person you you refer to often who is is Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. which many people have read, and of course he was writing out of this uh, example of horrific. Uh, violence and loss and ambiguity, and yet insisting on, and not and and uh, I don't want to say honor, like acknowledging the horror of that. Right? He did letting that he did. be true forever, and also insisting that meaning can be found. Yes, and he was the one who said, um, "Without meaning, there is no hope." But without hope, there is no meaning. So he tied those together. And, and of course, as you may remember from his books, that the people who lost hope died rather quickly. Uh, and the people who kept up hope, which must have been difficult in such horrible surroundings and horrible conditions, but the people who kept up hope or had meaning, found some meaning in their struggle, uh, managed to live a longer time or, or live until it was over, as Frankel himself did. What we know now is that the search for meaning is critical in in situations of, of loss, clear or ambiguous, and in situations of trauma. There has to be some meaning in it. And 
This is very difficult. For example, if a child dies or if a child commits suicide or is right. murdered or if a loved one disappears at sea, it's nonsensical. It doesn't have any meaning. But my point is that, too, is a meaning. The fact that it's meaningless is a meaning, and it always will be say, meaningless. Say some more. What do you mean? Well, I mean that if something is nonsensical, um, with totally without logic, without meaning, as many of these terrible mm-hmm. events are, then I think we have to leave it there. But I think we have to label it as it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. And I can live with something meaningless, someone might say. But what I found is as long as I have something else in my life that is meaningful. So uh, the mother of a missing child uh, will never find acceptance or meaning, meaning in that that makes sense. And that's correct. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hopefully in her life, she will have something else to balance that meaninglessness. So the search for meaning remains, but you, you can't necessarily, you, that, you have to let that, that stays vital, but you don't necessarily locate the meaning in that terrible thing. You have you to may find, find the it meaning elsewhere. elsewhere in your life. And, many and let people, that be good enough. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Good enough. I like that term, good enough, mm-hmm. Krista. That's, uh, in fact, I wrote a chapter on good enough. We really have to give up on perfection of a perfect answer. There are a lot of situations that have no perfect answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, let's say the mother of a kidnapped child may then, in fact, um, devote her life to helping prevent other children from going missing. Uh, and um, you see that all the time. Right. Where people who have terrible things happen to them then transform it into something that may help others. Mm-hmm. They can't help their own child anymore, but they can help others. That's a way of finding meaning in meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it feels like, and this, you know, this may be me being um, like wrongly judgmental again, but like sometimes, sometimes it feels like that's another expression of the American can-do spirit and. And that it feel when people devote the rest of their lives to uh, something that's connected with that something bad that happened to them, it can feel like a way of dwelling with that. But maybe, I mean, maybe what you're saying is that 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 may also be yes, the I, right I, human I reaction, and right that somehow it makes reaction. us uncomfortable because it's again this idea that they should move on. You got it. Yes, I think we are too judgmental. Mm-hmm. on people with ambiguous losses because we don't understand them. We don't understand that there's absolutely no possibility of closure and that if they are to have some resol- rev- uh, resolution or make some good out of the bad of it, they have to find some larger cause, mm-hmm. either in their own family by helping the other children or as other people, but many of them choose a larger cause, and I applaud them for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes them feel better, but in fact, it helps the rest of us as well. It mm-hmm. helps society um, when these kinds of um, passions are uh, turned in the direction of helping a larger issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, the the blaming thing. I think we should talk a little bit about that. The judgment thing. Yeah. 
In cultures that are highly mastery-oriented, that is, believing in solutions, when someone hasn't got a solution, we tend to turn on them. Uh, and in fact, oh, that's really blaming the victim. Yeah. And so we're not very comfortable with people who, who are suffering, who can't, find a, can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps yeah. and find a solution. We really need to become uh, more empathic for our brothers and sisters in life who may not be able to solve their problem through no fault of their own. Um, it, isn't, it isn't that they've chosen this. It happened to them. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of us should say things like, how are you? I'm so sorry it's still going on. Um, and by the way, you don't have to look far for this. Just look down your yeah. street. There's yeah. a caregiver there somewhere uh, who through no fault of his or her own uh, is dealing with something that won't get better. Uh, and so we need to, we just need to be kinder to each other and expect, um, expect finality and a period at the end of the sentence less often than we do. Mm. Mm. I mean, you've even started talking, I think you're, the writing you're doing now and I, I feel like what is absorbing you now is really that what this, this the phrase you're using is the myth of closure. Yes. That in fact, I don't know when that word got inserted into our vocabulary. Maybe you can speak to that. But that that, that word has led us astray. I believe that. I think closure, though, is a perfectly good word for real estate and business deals. So I don't <laughs> want to demonize right. the word closure. Yeah. But but closure is a terrible word in human relationships. Once you've become attached to somebody, love them, care about them, uh, even if, when they're lost, you still care about them. It's different. It's a different dimension. But you can't just turn it off. Uh, and we, we look around down the street from me. There's a Thai restaurant where there's a plate of fresh food in the window every day for their ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, are they pathological? No. Uh, that's a cultural way to remember your uh, ancestors. And in, somehow in our society, we've decided we, once someone is dead, you have to close the door. Yeah. Well, even Freud didn't do that. Uh, by the way, these people write like we should do that. But when he was asked by a client about his daughter who died of the flu in 1918, his favorite daughter. Was the word closure from Freud? Was that a Freudian no, term? No, he didn't okay. use the term, mm -hmm. but he would talk um, That's he... more about um, uh, ending it. I would right. think it was more from um, um, Lindemann after the Coconut Grove fire uh, where so many young people were killed in this nightclub fire and the exits had been closed. And so it was just a catastrophe. Um, he, he focused on uh, negative grief, pathological grief. Right. And he came up with uh, various categories of pathological grief. He didn't look at normal grief at all. Uh, and, and pathological grief involves things such as... Um, uh, not talking about it, which, by the way, some cultures don't, and now we know that's okay. Mm -hmm. Or he talked about repression, or he talked about, you know, not getting over it. He used more technical terms than mm -hmm. that. 
But it came down through our literature, and Kubler-Ross, certainly, that that uh, stages of grief helped with that, that yeah. you're supposed to come to a finite end. Right. Even though she probably... And she, she in her last book, she she takes it all back, yeah. uh, and she said it's a messy business. It's not linear. So you were going to tell the you were going to tell the story about Freud when his so he oh, was yes. kind of he's on the side of closure in history, but when his young daughter died, yes, um, a client said to, to Freud, "I'm so sorry, your daughter died," and he said, "No, she's right here," and he patted his watch chain, and he had some kind of fob on it. So I don't know if it was her picture or a lock of hair, but he he said, no, she's right here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there he was. Uh, she's psychologically present in, uh, in something on his watch chain. And uh, so many, many people, if you talk to them about their own personal stories, professionals I'm talking about who write about closure will say, no, we don't. So I think I think it was the sort of misunderstanding of loss. Uh, maybe it was also the high technology of our culture that, that is so good at solving problems, so we figured we could solve this one too. But we now know that people live with grief. They don't have to get over it. It's perfectly fine. I'm not talking about obsession, but just remembering. It's I sense that... Um I mean, nine eleven is probably the closest, the the biggest, most vivid example we have of um, of a collective kind of national experience of ambiguous loss. Um, and you and, and you've talked a little bit about being part of that, the aftermath of that with people. And I also sense in your writing that nine eleven, that that experience of nine eleven, um, kind of affected you and and brought your th- thinking about ambiguous loss a little bit farther down the road. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so talk about that. Definitely. Um, the 2006 book I wrote to put down all that I learned from 9-11, um, so many things. First of all, getting out of the ivory tower, you know, the university where you do this research, into the field, uh, and in this case, it was into smoky New York City uh, at the Labor Union Hall, which was just blocks, uh, two blocks away from Ground Zero, to work with all these wonderful families, uh, beautiful families, whose uh, loved one, a loved one in each family, was uh, missing down in the pile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned more about diversity in those uh, years working with those families than I did in any seminar or any book I ever read about diversity. Um, It humbled me. Uh, I listened more. I talked less. I used the elders in the family. There were always elders there. We always had three generations of people. And um, I listened to them more because they knew their culture better than I did. I found therapists in New York City who could speak the language because translation did not work. And this is again, this was the group you were working with, service workers. Service workers Mm -hmm. union. Yes, I was. I was called in a couple days after a nine eleven to help with that, because the president of the SEIU service workers union 
his wife was my student at the University of Wisconsin, and he knew that my specialty was working with families of missing persons. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got called in. Uh, New York City obviously has really uh, wonderful therapists, but in fact, they were stymied also. We met together uh, in a large um, group at one time, and they were feeling ineffective, but it was because I think many were only taught to do grief therapy. And if you do grief therapy with people who have loved ones who are missing, they'll walk out on you. They get very angry. And I understand why they do. Because they're still in that, at best, in that ambiguous position of That's saying right. yes. they, may, they may be dead and they may be alive That's and right. not relinquishing either one. And so it's very hard for therapists, including myself when I first was doing this, to move to that in-between position. We don't know if they're alive or dead. We cannot go to grief therapy. But you go to stress therapy, the stress of ambiguity. Mm. So you try to help them calm down with the stress of ambiguity so they can carry on with their daily work, take care of the other children, etc., but you never say, um, you know, they're really dead. By the way, uh, people, taxi drivers and other people would say that to them, and they mm. get furious, as I understand. I never correct anyone who has a missing person. Um, they may say, um, I think he's dead, but you know, uh, maybe not. So I'm going to change the locks just in case he comes back, because now I'd be frightened if he came back in the middle of the night. I don't correct that. How? Why should I? And it would be hubris on my part if I thought I knew that was right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So we just leave it. We just let it sit there. We become more comfortable with ambiguity. Um, I want to read something you wrote in The Guardian. Uh, and I think this... I think the occasion of this may have been the tsunami, maybe, or the Japanese earthquake. But the Malaysian were, airline. Yeah, I the think. Malaysian airline. But but you were writing about some of what you learned at nine eleven. You wrote um, one year later, a New York New York reporter doing a story on the anniversary of nine eleven asked me why I thought New Yorkers weren't over it yet. My answer: because you are trying to get over it. Yes. Paradoxically, as T.S. Eliot suggests, what we do not know about a missing loved one becomes all that we know. Another poet, John Keats, recommends in his letters to a young poet that he develop a, cap a capability for living with unanswered questions. Keats calls this negative capability, and this is what it takes to live with loved ones gone missing. This is also the way for the rest of us to stop pressuring those, these families to find closure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We just have to stop pressuring people to get over it. It's cruel, actually, to do that. I was um, critical of the news media about their yearning for closure. They like the word closure. But I have to say that once listening to CNN, um, Anderson Cooper stopped the other reporters and said, that's a bad word. There is no such thing as closure. 
And I just loved him for that. Mm. And I know from his own biography that he knows what loss is. And he understands that there is no closure. So he's the only reporter I've ever heard uh, explain that uh, in the line of his work. Mm -hmm. And I think the rest of us have to do a better job of it, too. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as closure. Uh, We have to live with loss, clear or ambiguous. And it's okay. It's okay. And it's okay to see people who are hurting and just to say something simple. I'm so sorry. We really don't have to say more than that. Hmm. Tell me about um, how this field is progressing. I mean, I think about how we're learning. Well, for one thing, we have we have a vast experience of dementia now, just because of the demographics of society. Um, we're learning so much about trauma and about how trauma lodges in the body as well as the mind, mm-hmm. and so. Um, um, we were all, but there's also I know I, you were writing about um, new generations of scholars coming into this field, and somebody writing about the grief of families of disappeared persons, which is this phenomenon, you know, in Argentina or worldwide. in Uganda worldwide, um, with the refugee crisis that's just probably going to be defining for this century. So, how, mm-hmm. what are we learning now? that is further informing you or ways we're applying this learning differently? I think one of the main things globally is the vast diversity of how people deal with this uh, and that we need to not have one norm, one normal way to cope with loss, either clear or ambiguous. Um, in in one country... Uh, it may be that uh, the wives of the missing men are uh, declared nobody because they no longer have a status, for example, a patriarchal country, and mistreated. They become the Cinderella's of the family. Um, but then there is a way to, for them to become a psychological family with each other, the, all these women who have missing husbands, which then gives them some agency so that um, their own families, which would be their husband's families, can no longer abuse them. I want to talk about that. And I, the, you wrote somewhere the, that the core of this theory, how is this? I, I think this was, uh, that the core of this theory is about, the core of the theory of ambiguous loss is the assumption that families can be both physical and psychological entities. Yes. And that both are sources of resilience. Yes. And that's what you're talking about. So that... So that we, and that we get to take that seriously, that we, that we find family in many ways. Yes, but researchers may not be so fond of it because it's hard to measure. Uh, it's the, hard to, psychological uh, a psychological family. And yeah. way back when I was first in college, they said, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Well, we now know a little better than that, uh, at least uh, from a more phenomenological point of view. The psychological family does exist, and it's a great source of comfort for many people across the globe. Uh, It manifests in many different ways. As I said, these women, for example, found each other now because that's all they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, For somebody else, um, it might be uh, ancestors that you keep in your mind uh, that give you strength or 
Uh, it could be a family of choice uh, in person here. For example, uh, transgendered kids may not find uh, their own families so welcoming, at least at first. I think that's changing now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they would find a psychological family with others who are more like-minded and uh, empathic. We have done this all the time, but we haven't labeled it. Right. But that seems to me to be another example of, you know, like you were saying a minute ago, that if you, when you give people a name for this kind of loss, ambiguous loss, there's, there's something about simply being able to name it that lessens the stress. And this idea that a psychological family is real mm -hmm. and its effects on us mm -hmm. as a source of resilience. And it can help. It can mm -hmm. help us mm -hmm. when times of trouble, when we might even be alone. And so you, and by the way, uh, some people will say that God is part of their psychological family or some deity uh, in their own religious belief system. It gives them strength. Mm -hmm. uh, and it literally does lower their stress level, uh, if you were to measure it. Mm -hmm. uh, to have a psychological family of some sort, a psychological entity of some sort in their mind when they're in, in trouble. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I even think, I think pets like are, pets. can be that. I agree. Provide pets. that are yes. part of family, but to kind of honor that is what yes. you're talking about. Pets even, do Even serve with that. psychological, with social scientific language. Yes, yes. Um, there's some place I want to look for this in my notes. See if I'm often when I'm doing these interviews, I have somebody in my headphones so I can be looking at my notes gracefully and they don't know it. Um, uh -huh. something you wrote about perception. Where is that? Um, perception matters, but yeah. it's not and all that said, matters. No, I think, but what you were saying that, let me just find, oh, here it is. Oh, so the people often respond to ambiguous loss with absolute thinking. When loss remains ambiguous, the only window for change lies in perceptions, and human perceptions are real in their consequences. So, I mean, that's that also that is, this is a slightly different context. That also applies to our perception of family that we have found family. Yes, even if you want to call it psychological family, yes, is real in its consequences. Yes, and the perception when when you have an ambiguous loss, um, perhaps. Any, any stressor event, how the person or the family as a whole perceives it varies a great deal, even in uh, one neighborhood, but definitely across the globe, across cultures. And so in order for us to know how to help those families, we first have to figure out how they perceive it. Again, we're back to meaning, really. Mm -hmm. What is the meaning this has to you? Uh, and so, in fact, that is the first question I ask. What does this mean to you? Because until I know what this means to them, I have no idea about how to intervene. Um, if I say, what does this mean to you? They may say, it's a punishment from God or it's a punishment from my loved one. Uh, he's always been after me or something like that. Then I know what what their viewpoint is and can proceed that way. Or they may say, I always fail at everything. That's what this means. Mm -hmm. Then we know mm -hmm. you proceed that way. Or a person might say, this is another challenge and I think I can manage it. This is another 
meaning. It was like the alarm clock story I right, told. Right, right, right. So perception matters very much, and it, it opens the window for how you would proceed toward resilience and um, strength. It isn't, of course, all that matters, because sometimes people perceive one thing, and in fact, um, uh, data would show you something else. For example, they would say, my child is normal, um, my child can do this, when in fact the child isn't old enough to do it or well enough to do this one thing, it would be in danger of the child. Right. Then you have to step in at a different level. If you could go back and be with your your father, your homesick father, or your grand was it your grandmother who maternal grandmother who said she would she lost her mountains but she wouldn't give up her language. Like um how do you think you would um be differently with them? Have you thought about that? Well I had a good relationship with both of them actually. Mm -hmm. Um but let me um for the moment, I think my father would be very proud that I've written about this. He he was a writer, a bit of a writer himself, and um, and of course he translated all of his mother's letters for me, which I have incorporated into my writing. Uh, and I think he would be proud. But let me say something about my maternal grandmother, who mm. was <clears throat> how can I say it? A little strange, but I loved her so. Uh, and the last time I went to Switzerland, I was with my cousin, who does not speak English, and we went on a trip together. And what happened was, the way I spoke to my maternal grandmother, I didn't say much, but she never learned English. So I, she would speak Swiss, and I would answer in English. Well, it came out of my head came out of my mouth and I was so I was, felt so close to her because to speak with my cousin last year in Switzerland I had to pull it out and there it was mm. and I was told by some people who overheard me that I spoke Swiss German without an accent mm. and I was so pleased <laughs> that I spoke like a native so um, I think my grandmother would have loved that, but in fact, so my father would have loved that too. Mm -hmm. I think language has become the symbol of the connection. That's so interesting, isn't it? For a lot of people, maybe. Um, you also, uh, you don't, I, I haven't found you writing about this exhaustively, but you mention it, that you, you went through a divorce. You were, you were divorced from the father of your children. And that divorce is an ambiguous loss. And yes. that really brings this down to earth because so many of us, um, that's an experience that is so common. Yes. Um, and I have to say I get it, but I, I also kind of want you to explain to me how it's an ambiguous loss. Well, obviously it's not as dramatic as the disasters we are talking about, but it's more common every day. And that is you, you uh, are leaving someone you have lost someone by the divorce certificate, but they're still here. Uh, so they're here, but not here. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're present and also absent at the same time. It's, that's especially true when you co-parent children. Uh, and so divorce is a kind of um, human relationship that is ruptured, uh, but not gone. When when I was studying at the University of Wisconsin, the psychiatrist I was studying with, Carl Whitaker, said to us, there's no such thing as divorce. You can never get divorced. And at that time, we were just furious with him for right. saying that. 
But in fact, that's correct. Once you have had an attachment, you cannot cut it off entirely. It is part of your being. It is part of who you are. And as I say, if you're co-parenting children, you are physically interacting still. Um, it's messy. It's in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the ambiguity of divorce. It's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a grief. It's a, it's a loss, right? Even if you want it and it's the right thing and all There's of that. There's still a grief. And it, what, it, what struck me as I was thinking about this, thinking about interviewing you is... Uh, you know, this is maybe another one of these um, areas where we could, where we could be kinder, where we could be better kinder. at. Because I think um, when we t- when we talk about grief or, or divorce, or when we find out somebody's getting a divorce, um, I'm not sure that we that we treat it as we would a loss. Or that we acknowledge that grief in the room. And sometimes I've made a mistake by saying, I'm sorry, and they'll say, right. don't be. <laughs> so right. here's yeah. where I, yeah. I prefer to use the line, what does that mean to you? So they can give you a clue as, as to where they are with the divorce. And some people these days will just say, uh, well, we're just both fine. Uh, and we just decided to go our separate ways. And so, and then somebody else may say, I'm devastated. Mm-hmm. So I think that question of what does this mean to you is a, a way to get a clue mm-hmm. and then to know what to, how to proceed after that. Mm-hmm. There's great variation, yes. Yeah. Adoption is another more everyday kind of ambiguous loss. And You mean because the child has lost the... Where's the losses in of the um, birth parent or or the... Uh, the child knows they have a birth parent somewhere, but they don't know where that person okay. is. Yeah. And the birth parent knows they have a child somewhere, especially the mother, uh-huh. uh, and they don't know where it is. And the birth mothers will say every Mother's Day they grieve. Uh, they know the child's birthday, they grieve. It's very hard, and so ambiguous loss is related to that. Mm-hmm. It's also related to foster children who are pulled in one one foster home and then out and then another. And if they get attached to the foster family, they can't really co- stay connected once they age out at age 18. So that while this isn't my area of expertise, other people have taken this up and written books about ambiguous loss and foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you, you, this kind of follows on something you said a little while ago about, um, that there is no such thing as closure, that when you have a loss or you have grief, it remains part of you in some way and that that's normal. Um, and here's another way you said it, uh, that keeping deceased loved ones in your heart and mind, um, like a sort of psychological family, uh, can be rich in meaning, and it should not be branded as pathology. And you wrote this um, essay about the myth of closure, uh-huh. the problem with closure, with a colleague. Uh, was she also a psychiatrist, psychologist? No, uh, no. Donna? Donna Carnes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a poet uh, oh, living okay. in Madison, Wisconsin. All right. Now. So that makes sense because her poetry, she, tell, tell her story. Um, she had lost, she had a very kind of classic yes. case of ambiguous loss. Um, Jim Gray was um, a um, computer science, first computer scientist, uh, Turing Award winner, 
a famous mentor of a lot of the people on the East West Coast in the tech uh, arena. He went sailing one Sunday and uh, out of San Francisco Bay and has not been seen since. Um, his family called me because um, his company, Microsoft, wanted to have a memorial after three months. They wanted closure. And the family was not ready. And so uh, I worked with the family and, and in fact, with Microsoft to delay uh, one year and then to have a tribute instead of a memorial. That is on uh, online. Anybody can see it, uh, all the, the uh, speeches that were given. It was... Um, I've, I've worked... Uh, um, mis- how can I say this? Sorry. Um, Jim Gray's wife is named Donna Carnes, and... Uh, she is now back in Wisconsin, which was her hmm. uh, family of okay. origin home. And she is again writing poetry. So she has transformed from the technology arena of, of Palo Alto and the, the West Coast uh, to a more um, uh, artistic hmm. realm, which she said was what she was in high school. She was a poet in high school. Hmm. And she has written some wonderful poems, I think, about her missing husband. And that is how she copes. And I wondered if you would read this one, which I think was the last one in that article. I have it here, Um, Walk On, which just seemed to me... uh, So you you had this piece where you wove together psychological insights and research insights and her poems and her experience and your experience. And uh, this felt like such a... It, like it captured um, a way a way to do this thing you talk about about live with ambiguity and let yes. the grief be part of you and and let the loss be a loss and let life have meaning. So anyway, Donna Carnes wrote, "Walk on, you walk on, still beside me, eyes shadowed in dusk. You're the lingering question at each day's end. I have to laugh at how." Open-ended you remain, still with me after all these years of being lost. I carry you like my own personal time machine as I put on my lipstick, smile, and head out to the party. (laughs) You know, Pauline, you do, um, even in the beginning, I think, of the Ambiguous Lost book, which was your first, that first book, um, you, you you talk about the kinship between the poet and the therapist. Would you say a I little do. bit about that? Yeah, that was so intriguing to me. Um, yes, I think. Uh, where was that now? The um, I'm not. I think I have to read it because maybe I can. it was in this. I the myth of closure. Um, uh, let's see. I know where it was. I think it is here. I mean, it's like when you quoted Keats the poet, in that, uh, Keats in that yeah, article yeah, yeah. for The Guardian. I'm sorry, are we wasting No, tape? no, it's okay. We're not wasting anything. No, it isn't here. I think it might be was it at the beginning theory of the, thing. I thought it was maybe at the beginning of this. Is Am it? I making that up? Frozen Grief? I grew up in a Midwestern. No, on that. I don't know. I think it's here. I've got my wrong glasses on for reading, but let me look here. 
Um, oh, is it in the art, the newer article? You the wrote? newer article. Oh, yeah, maybe it's in there. And I think it comes right near the end, doesn't it? Or is it in the beginning? Let me see if I. I thought there was something. Oh no, you're right. In it's beginning. in the beginning. Okay. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> and I do, I do believe this. Scientific discoveries happen not through method right. or magic, but from for being open. I'll start over. Scientific discoveries happen not through method or magic, but from being open to discovery by listening to one's emotions and responding to intuition. Like a poet, the researcher as well as the therapist needs the ability to imagine what the truth might be. Each tests it, but in a different way. The poet words a couplet, the therapist tries a strategy, and the researcher tests hypothesis. A theorist, however, must be aware of all three. Right. Was that like like the poet, the researcher and the therapist needs to be able to imagine what the what the truth might be? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. We have to imagine what the truth might be. And I, I know that with statistics and and with uh, uh, scientific rigorous scientific methodologies, uh, we say that's the truth or an approximation of truth. But I think we also have to ask the right research question. And many times we haven't been doing that. Uh, and so that's where intuition and mm. imagination come in. Right. In the yes. formulation of the right the research question. question. That's right. right. Which is also a good virtue for life. Good virtue for life. <laughs> it is. Well, this is what I've learned. That it is still hard for me, given my... Um, American Protestant Swiss American background to deal with ambiguity. <laughs> uh, I I find I need to learn daily um, how stressful it is, and I'm reminded daily how stressful it is, and I need to learn how to be calm in the midst of it. Yeah. I don't suppose that will ever end, but I am curious about it still. Yes, very much so. Well, that you know, that might be your last word, but I want to ask you, um, and this is a huge question, so it's just really where you would start reflecting on this question. Uh, through, so coming from your Swiss Protestant American back, immigrant background, um, and through into through this work you've done today, and this field that you opened up, and that now has mm -hmm. kind of permeated our culture. Um, uh, so how how does how do um how would you start to talk about what you've learned about what it means to be human that you wouldn't have known before? Oh, I surely um, early on I was described as very decisive and certain and sure of myself, um, probably as a freshman in college when we did one of these sort of things where you learn that. I learned, I've learned from all this work um, over these 40 years now that um, I'm more unsure, I'm less decisive, and uh, still curious about the ambiguity, but not exactly a friend of it yet, uh, nor will I probably ever be. I'm not sure anybody is ever. 
a friend of it. And neuroscience will tell us more that the brain doesn't like ambiguity. Right, right. So I can understand that. But I also think it makes me more human to be able to um, let go of perfectionism, of decisiveness, and all of these other things that probably I learned culturally as in my home um, and probably was rewarded for them. Um, but now I see that life is not that way. And it delivers things to us uh, sometimes that we cannot solve. And we have to live with them. And we have to, in fact, do more than live with them. Uh, try to be comfortable with it. Try to embrace it. I don't like to use the word acceptance. Hmm. But I think we can try to be comfortable with what we cannot solve. Hmm. Is there anything um, that I haven't, we haven't talked about that, I, that you'd like to... Oh, Lily has a question behind the glass. Oh. Okay. <laughs> She's going to... Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Okay, that's great. Um, so, uh, you mentioned, um, slave, you mentioned the kind of long-term loss, like slavery, generational loss that still manifests. And in fact, um, it's so interesting how there's this whole new field now of epigenetics, right? Of how, of how trauma, um, transmits itself generationally in the way mm -hmm. future generations mm -hmm. not not so much um, as a as an exact memory but as a response mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is if conditioned by the trauma that actually happened to previous generations um, and then you know uh, as I recently I as I've been writing I, I've been thinking a lot about so you know growing up with a father who was adopted who had this loss of memory but you know thinking about how that affected, me and the family indirectly. So I just just curious about how you see that kind of loss that is not that is that happened to previous generations. Like how you see that turn up and how you work with that. I, I think there is a generational transmission of trauma uh, regarding ambiguous loss. Um, Drew Gilpin Faust wrote the book *The Republican of Su the Republic she of was Suffering*. The president of Harvard. Harvard right. She's the president of Harvard. But was she a psychologist originally? No, or? she's a historian. Historian. Okay, right. Uh, and she makes the point that um, our republic, our country, was founded on unresolved loss because of the Civil War uh, and all the tragedy that happened there, um, and and that many of these bodies never came home and so on. So it was not really resolved in the usual way. And and as a result, our republic is founded on suffering. And uh, I think she pretty much leaves it there. But I would carry it further by saying it wasn't just the Civil War. It was slavery. It was um, the uprooting of the American Indians. It was all the immigrants that, that have come since then. And every genocide that has happened worldwide uh, creates a, 
uh, society of suffering that is uh, ancestral suffering that mm-hmm. passes down through family patterns and family processes. Sometimes we don't even know. After the Holocaust, for example, the first generation didn't speak of it. Right. Many times the traumatized yeah. first generation doesn't speak of it. The soldiers are that way too. Uh, then the second generation wonders why and are angry at their parents. And it may be the third generation, the grandchildren, who finally uh, get the answer. Um, but at any rate... Of what happened. Of what happened yeah. and why grandpa is the way he is or why grandma is the way she is. Uh, and so the story finally comes out, perhaps because the grandparent is now uh, approaching old age and thinks they better share the story while they still can. Yeah. Um, these, even when the stories aren't told, however, there's a transmission of the trauma by, let's say, having a parent who is not expressive, a parent who doesn't speak much, a parent who can't show love or emotion, uh, or a parent who um, uh, may have been brutalized, who then passes on the violence. So there's a lot we don't know about what happens when this is transmitted. And what we do need to know is that our society as a whole, not just families, but our society as a whole, I think, um, is afraid of talking about death and uh, is afraid of talking about suffering and uh, having people gone lost and grieving for a long time, Mm. primarily because of this transmission of trauma ancestrally that we are a nation founded on unresolved grief. As a result, we don't like to talk about death, and we don't, for sure, like to talk about ambiguous loss. Mm. Okay. All right. I think we're done. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't so painful. Thank you, Krista. You make it easy. (laughs) Now I'm getting a tickle, though. Oh, it's great. 